Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's the beginning of a new year, and what we usually do on the first Sunday of the new year is just sort of think about what the Lord is doing and what we want to see the Lord do among us in the next year. Uh, I thought about that in the past couple of weeks. What do I most want for Christ Church this year? What do we uh, collectively as a church need to focus on? There's all kinds of good answers to that question, but I, I continue to come back again and again to really the foundational reason why we began this church uh, seven and a half years ago now. In 2021, our vision is really not changing at all. I want us this year to surrender to and, and to experience the deep, deep love of God. The deep love of God more and more. So, so can I ask you a question as we get going today? A spiritual diagnostic question for each of you to think about. Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that God loves you? That he really loves you? As in, that he's head over heels crazy about you. That he delights in you. That when he thinks about you, his heart fills with admiration and joy. Some of you, I would venture to guess, might even be a little uncomfortable with the way I just worded that. That should tell you something. Some of you may think to yourself, well, yeah, I believe that God loves me, but man... We need to talk about sin. We need to talk about repentance. We need to talk about the problems that we see in the world. Uh, because God's angry at sin. God's disappointed with the way things are going in the world. God, God doesn't like sin. He doesn't like what sin does to us and to our relationship with him. Well, listen, I, I think that we're a church that takes sin seriously. The, the scripture undoubtedly takes sin seriously. But, but we have a tendency, I think... To believe that, that sin changes God's disposition towards us if we're believers. Can I tell you something? God is not that fickle. Imagine your parenting here. If you're a parent, which I know many of you are. Loving parents are able to look at their children. Sometimes with frustration or with discouragement or even with anger. In a way that, no, that in no way dilutes their love. For their children. And if that's true of us as human parents, how much more is that true of God in whom we are made uh, in his image? God's love is never compromised by anger. God's love is not dependent upon our behavior. God's love is not dependent upon our behavior. It's dependent upon his character. Love is not just an emotion in God. Love is a part of who God is. John tells us in 1 John that God is love. Now, why is that important for us this year to understand? It's important because the tenor of our spiritual lives 
is so tightly bound up with what we think God thinks about us. The way we live spiritually, the way we practice our religion uh, is centrally bound to how we think God views us. If we think that God views us as angry or that God is disappointed with us or that God is distant, then inevitably our spiritual response is going to be one of apathy trending towards a a duty-driven effort to earn his approval and love. But if we believe that God is love, if we, if we believe that God is love towards us, we can surrender to his love and rest. So, so that's what my prayer is for my life this year, uh, for my family's life, and, and for your life, my church family. My prayer this year is that we can do just that, that we can rest in the river that is God's love. But listen, to do that, we need strength. <laughs> we need strength to do that. We need the kind of strength that Paul prays for here. In Ephesians chapter 3. Let's look at it together. Paul picks up this prayer in verse 14 that he started in verse 1 of chapter 3. But got derailed for about 13 verses as he tends to do in his letters. He says, for this reason. For what reason? So he's basing this prayer on everything he said in chapter 2. About what God has done in and through Jesus Christ. The first half of chapter 2. Paul tells us that Jesus saves sinners out of death and brings them into um, the life and light of God's love through Jesus' death and resurrection. And then the second half of Ephesians 2 is about how God has brought his children into this new humanity that, that he calls the church. And so Paul prays here in our text that they would continue to grasp the goodness and the love of God that has been demonstrated for them in the work of Christ and, and in the work of the Holy Spirit. He, he prays that they would be strong. And, and specifically, he prays that they would have a certain kind of strength. Uh, and, and I want to show you two kinds of strength that Paul prays for the Ephesians to have. Two kinds of strength that we need in the coming year if we're going to grow in our love for God as we rest in his love for us. So we're going to see that Paul asks that we would have a strength that is spiritual. And secondly, a strength to see Jesus' love. So let's look at those things together just for a couple of minutes. First, Paul prays that the strength Christians have would be a strength that is spiritual. Verses 16 and 17. He begins his prayer by addressing God the Father, and then he moves to ask that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant the Christians there in Ephesus to be strengthened with power. So there's this multiplication of power words here. Paul does that a lot in Ephesians. At the end of chapter 1, he did that, for example. He wants these believers to have strength, to have power. But look what he says. It's a spiritual strength he's asking God to give them. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. Through his spirit in your inner being. So when I say this is a strength that's spiritual, I mean that in two senses. First, it's a strength that comes from the Holy Spirit. He says that the strength Christians need is strength that comes from God himself. So it's spiritual in the sense that it's Holy Spirit given. It's spiritual with a, with a capital S. Listen, if you're a Christian, you are empowered to live the Christian life. Only as you access the power of the Holy Spirit. Only as you are more and more spirit-filled. 
Now, Presbyterians don't love that kind of language. That's more charismatic language. Oh, look out. It just so happens that Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 5. Just a couple of verses later, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can only follow Jesus when you are spirit-filled and when you are spirit-led. The only way to live the Christian life is through the empowering work given to us through grace to the Holy Spirit. And we see this all over the Bible. Think about, think about Jesus' friends, the 12 disciples slash apostles. If you read through the Gospels, what are the apostles like? They're not exactly spiritual dynamos. They're not exactly superstars. Biographies are not going to be written about the apostles from Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. No, they're presented as faithless and clueless and oftentimes sinful in their disposition towards Jesus. And then you move to the next book of the Bible. You get to Acts. And, and you see these same men acting in a radically different way. They're bold. They're faithful. They're on mission, serving the Lord and talking about the gospel to those that they encounter and they're living life together in deep community and fellowship with one another. And so the question comes up as you read through the Bible, what changed these apostles? What made them the men they were from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John to Acts? Listen, it's not that they went to seminary. It's not that they read the right books. It's not that they had a certain spiritual experience. It's the Holy Spirit. Acts 1 tells us the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. It was not them, in fact. It was God the Spirit at work in them. So how does the Spirit strengthen us? Well, Paul tells us he enables us to believe more and more that Jesus dwells in our hearts through faith. That's what verse 17 says. This teaching series we're beginning next week is really designed to serve us in helping us know how to develop habits to to be with Christ in and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our weekly and daily patterns and rhythms. So Paul asks for a strength that's spiritual in that it's from the Holy Spirit. But then he says it's a strength from the Holy Spirit for our spirits. That's, That's the second sense in which the strength we need is spiritual. Look at what Paul says. He prays that they would have strength through his Spirit in your inner being. That that phrase, in your inner being, literally means uh, the person inside of you. And and in the Bible, it's it's a reference to the heart. It's a reference to the seat of human life and emotion, to the cockpit of your life. Um, the, The inner being is the focal point at the center of who you really are. And what the scriptures say is that that is where the Holy Spirit comes and does his renewing and strengthening work. So, when I say that Paul prays and that God, under uh, Paul under the influence of God's Spirit, prays for strength, I mean that it's Holy Spirit-empowered strength for our own inner lives, for our own spirits. Now, here's something I want you to notice. Think about this with me. I think it's important to see what Paul does not pray for here. He doesn't say a word. A word in his prayer, about the outward circumstances that the Ephesian Christians were facing. Uh, And by the way, their circumstances would not have been ideal. Not exactly a joyride to be a first century Christian in the Roman Empire. And Paul's circumstances weren't ideal either. But Paul doesn't pray, protect them, 
or get me out of here so I can go minister to them or others. Not that those are bad things to pray. They're not. But that's not what Paul focuses on when he asks for God to give him strength. Rather, he prays that they would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in their inner lives. And he proves here, I think, the priority in Christianity of the inner life over the outer life. Here's what I mean. When you're strengthened by the Holy Spirit to believe that Jesus dwells in your hearts by faith, your outward circumstances do not dominate you. If your inner life is strong, your outward life doesn't matter as much. But, but you can have a strong outward life and a weak inner life, and your life will still crumble when hard times come. And, and you know this by experience. What's important, according to the scripture, is, is communion with God in the inner life, not what's happening outside with your external circumstances. Listen to what the great British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote about this point. He says, the ultimate trouble with the non-Christian is that he knows nothing of the inner being. His whole life is bounded by what he is aware of. That is his only and his total life. He has no inner being to retreat into. He is completely dependent upon the circumstances of his outer life. He lives in one realm only. So when he is in trouble, he falls back on psychology or drugs or some other trick. Do you know what it is to retreat into your inner being? That's one of the most fantastic blessings you could ever know. And that's the kind of strength that we need to experience the love that God has for us. A strength that is spiritual. Let's look at the second kind of strength Paul mentions. A strength to see Jesus' love. He moves on in his prayer. And in verse 18 and 19, he asked that the Ephesians may have another kind of strength. And I want to just take the rest of our time, really, and camp out here for a few minutes and marinate in this text, partly just because of the great beauty of this text and partly because of how profound the idea is. I don't think it's too much to say that this is the key to the Christian life. This part of this prayer is is central to everything we're about here. At Christ Church, it is the reason that this church exists. So what is it? Let me set it up for you. What's Paul doing? Notice he's building us up here with his language, as he often does. It's typical for him to get really fired up in this prayer. And he's using all these words that pile up on one another. And he's praying for these people that he loves. And he's asking God. He's pleading with God. He's begging God that they would have strength, that they would have power, that they would have passion. And then he hits us with it. He says, God, give them strength. Give them power. Give them passion. For what? To change the world. To overcome all their struggles. To speak truth courageously to the powerful. To stand up against the dark forces that are opposed against us. No, no, he doesn't say any of those things. He says, give them strength and give them power to comprehend Do you see that there? To know something. To know what? We need strength and power to know how much Jesus Christ loves us. And that's it. That's enough. In fact, that's more than enough. Do you believe that's enough? Do you believe, really? That the real strength you need in your life is the strength to truly grasp the deep, deep love that God 
feels for you in Jesus Christ? Are you surrendered to the sufficiency of God's love for you? The reason I ask that is because the only way for you to change, the only way for you to grow, to make a difference, for you to develop, is to more and more and more have the power to see the love of Jesus Christ for you. These are... These are amazing verses. Paul wants us, he says in verse 19, to to comprehend something that really is incomprehensible. He says, I want you to know this love that, look at the end, surpasses knowledge, the breadth and length and height and depth of Jesus' love. Let's play with those words for a minute. Jesus' love is broad. It's so broad that no type of person is too far gone to receive it. Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whatever experiences you've had that plague you with shame and with guilt, none of those are too much for the love of Jesus Christ. He redeems all types of people. Your sin, strong as it feels to you, is not as strong as the love of Jesus. He redeems everyone, all types of people, Your sin is not nearly as powerful as his love. The breadth of your brokenness cannot compare to the breadth of his redemption. Jesus does not ever give up on people. That's how broad his love is. The depth and the height and and the length of Jesus' love. His, His love is so long that you cannot run so far that you will not be able to receive it. Jesus is going to, to chase you down with his love. Your rebellion and your straying away and your prodigal wanderings, these things, they can't ever take you out of the range of the pursuing love of Jesus. He's like the the father in the parable of the prodigal son who hikes up his robe and takes off sprinting down the road to embrace his son. There will never in your lives ever be a single infinitesimal second where you're not being rapidly pursued by the gracious love of Jesus. And once he gets a hold of you, he will never leave you. Nothing can pluck you out of his hand. He's never going to forsake you. That's how long his love is. Jesus' love is so high. Its height is so enormous that he's going to get you to a condition of such glory that we can't even really imagine it now. John talks about this in 1 John 3. He says that, It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we will know that we will be like him and we will be with him. Jesus wants to take us to a place and get us into a condition where where we enjoy everything he enjoys. Have you ever been in love? Most of you have, right? When When you're really in love with someone. You want them to be with you all the time. I, I don't like traveling places without Marianne. When I see beautiful sights, it's never as enjoyable to me because Marianne's not with me. Because I love to be with her. Because she's my wife and we're one together. That's how God feels about you in Jesus. And the love of Jesus is so high that Jesus is going to bring us with him. To enjoy the glory that he has now with his father. Jesus' love is so deep that there's nothing you can do to change it. There's nothing you can do to affect his love for you. Jesus is not going to get tired of you. Jesus is not going to love you less as he really gets to know you. 
He's not going to shame you for your failures to love him back. Jesus' love for you is indeed unconditioned. It's not based on or dependent on you returning love to him in a way that he deems to be adequate. His love for you will not change. It won't change when you let him down. He loves you more than you love your sin. It's so high and so deep that you cannot get around it or surpass it or avoid it. It's unconquerable. It's unchangeable. It's unassailable. There's nothing more important for you. I feel confident, whether I've known you for years and years or for five minutes, I feel confident in the name of Jesus Christ telling you that there is nothing more important for you than for you to know how much Jesus loves you. He smiles at the thought of you. He delights in you at this very moment. But Paul knows that we forget that. (laughs) He knows that we struggle to believe it, which is why he prays this prayer, that we would have this kind of strength, that we would have this kind of power, not the power to be world changers, but the power to see how much Jesus loves us. Our problem is that we don't really believe that. And so my prayer for us this year is that we would more and more believe it, and as we believe it, experience his love. Listen to David Benner. He writes this. Any authentic spiritual journey must grow from direct personal experience of God. There is no substitute for a genuine encounter with perfect love. Knowledge by acquaintance is always better than mere knowledge by description. Knowing God is not simply a matter of believing certain things about him. One of my favorite illustrations is from one of C.S. Lewis's works, where he writes about the difference between going on a vacation through the English countryside and exploring its beauty and its grandeur and all of its pleasantness and looking at a map of the English countryside. Now, on the one hand, Maps are important. We don't use maps now. GPS on your phones, your iPhone map app is important. It can tell you how to get from point A to point B in a relatively short amount of time. It can help you plot out your journey. But looking at the map is not the same as walking through the English countryside. Some of you in your Christian life are just staring at the map. You're not walking. You're not walking through the garden with Jesus. Knowledge by acquaintance is vastly superior to knowledge via description and information only. The the scriptures tell us that you only know Jesus to the the degree that, that Jesus is melting you and changing you and maybe even disturbing you and comforting you. All of our problems is that we're not grasping the love of Jesus. And that's why we're asked, we're prayed for here for God to give us strength to see Jesus' love, to see it and comprehend it in, a, in an experiential way, in an intimate way. And Paul's asking for the Christians then and for us now to comprehend the love of Jesus because comprehending the love of Jesus is what changes us. It's, it's what gives us victory. It's what grows us. It's what we need most of all. And it's why we exist as a church. A number of years ago, in the early days of our church plant, I was meeting regularly with a guy who had been visiting our church, uh, just doing some discipleship work with him, reading some stuff together, talking about the gospel. And he said to me at the end of one meeting, you know, Luke, I've got something I I just want to mention to you that I've been thinking about as we've been meeting. And, you know, me, I'm thinking, man, 
He's about to really make me build up my hubris. My pride a little here is going to make me feel good. And he said, you know, all my life, uh, every preacher I've ever had has told me he was a sinner. But you're the only one I've ever believed. (laughs) And I thought, how am I to receive that? (laughs) Is that a compliment? I'm going to take that as a compliment. What was going on with him was that he was... uh, experiencing for the first time what it feels like to admit your sin, to acknowledge your need, and then just to rest in God's grace. And he was beginning to experience what we call gospel freedom. He was beginning to surrender to the reality of the deep love of God for him in Jesus, even in spite of his own sin, because Jesus takes sin away. He was beginning to, well, to change. That's what I want for you this year. That's what I want for myself this year. For us to be able to say, yeah, we really are sinners, but Jesus came to conquer sin. So can we rest in his love? A a theologian uh, tells a story that I read this week that I thought was interesting about him uh, taking a trip, doing some teaching with a a group of pastors in the Philippines. And uh, they took a break from the teaching sessions and he took them out on a snorkeling trip to uh, swim and snorkel. And he came to find out that all of these people uh, had varying degrees of terror of the water. None of them knew how to swim. And uh, so he began to teach them. And he writes that it's remarkable how quickly they learned how to swim. And, And within an hour of first entering the water. They're wearing life jackets when they get in and they have just released their white-knuckled grip from the sides of the boat. Within an hour, all of them had abandoned their life vests and were snorkeling on their own in the ocean. And he asked, how could this have been possible? And he says, the key wasn't my skillful instruction. The key was that they had grasped the spiritual principle of trust. They were willing to enter the water and let go of the side of the boat. And they trusted their teacher when he told them that they would float. And one woman, floating for the first time in her life on water, said, Nobody told me that you don't have to do anything but float. That's a much more profound spiritual statement than she realized at the time. Once you learn to surrender... to to the unstoppable, never-giving-up love of God. Once you place your full weight on the love of God, tension and fear and apprehension and self-dependence evaporate. Imagine what happens when when you, on the other hand, try to float, but, but instead you keep moving your head around and thrashing in the water. What happens? You start to sink. Just like Peter, when he took his eyes off of Jesus. So what's our goal this year as a church? Our goal is to float. To float on the river that is God's great love. It's no coincidence that John in John 6 calls the Holy Spirit a river of living water that flows out of the very heart of Jesus. Our goal is to rest in his love. That's the strength we need. Nobody told me that you don't have to do anything but float. That's what it means to be a Christian, to float and let God carry you with his great love. Let's pray.